We're coming off of uh, Jonah, and so we're moving into a couple different things. One of the things you will probably hear frequently as we move forward is pro- uh, different prophecies and sort of like readings of those. And so part of what we'll do today is to just start looking at that a little bit. Um, and also I promise since today is Pentecost Sunday that by the end of this we will get to Pente- Pentecost. Um, and so before we go anywhere else, let's just, let's just pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your pouring out of your spirit upon, upon us. And I just thank you for our time to be able to be here together. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, speak what you want us to hear today. Um, that it's not me speaking, but you. Lord, that you would show us and open up your word to us in such a way that it, it is communicating things that you want us to know, to understand and to be transformed through. In your name, amen. Many of you are probably familiar with um, the story Gulliver's Travels. Uh, for those who aren't, um, Gulliver, is a, it's a fictional story written by Jonathan Swift um, in the uh, 1726. And that story has uh, a fictional character going on adventures. And every time he goes on an adventure, he discovers a new land And in that new land, he discovers new peoples. For instance, he discovers miniature people. And then on his next adventure, he discovers giants. And he meets different ones. One of them, he actually discovers a land where the horses are the smart, wise creatures, and the humans are more like beasts. What you may not know about Gulliver's Travels is the reason it was written is as a satirical critique of the science community of his time. And so there were different things that Jonathan Swift saw about the way that science was being done, and so he wrote a story to make fun of the science. And so one of those is actually the fact that there was progress being made in microscopes. And so there's this understanding of the fact that there are smaller and smaller worlds to be discovered. And so he has smaller worlds, little people, and big people with little progressively smaller and he's making fun of that. Now we laugh, because in reality, there are smaller things to be seen. But at the point when Jonathan Swift wrote this book, he didn't understand that. Fast forward to 1861, um, Ignaz Semmelweis is a physician who works in a hospital, and one of her primary, his primary tasks is delivering of babies. The problem is, is that there are two wings to this hospital. One is for midwives that deliver the babies, and one is for the doctors. And the doctors have 10 to 20 times the death rate of the women who give birth of the midwives. And so Ignaz sets out to figure out why. And he discovers that the doctors are working on cadavers to try to understand things about medical science. And that if they start washing their hands, that it will completely fix the problem. It is unaccepted by the medical community, and no matter that he demonstrates that it works, he's ignored. And again, we can sort of look at that and be shocked by the fact that that's what it is, but that is what happened. And yet, as we go forward, you get to um, H.G. Wells, and he writes the book War of the Worlds, and he imagines only 40 years later a world where Martians invade our, our world, 
and no amount of technology can stop them. But the things that bring them to their knees is the same thing, to some extent, that Ignaz recognized, right? It's the small creatures, the biological creatures, that bring everything to a standstill. And what's amazing is that between the time when Ignaz is there and H.G. Wells writes his book, there is a huge growth in understanding of how the world works. And what's called germ theory really starts to take on and become an accepted thing. Now, we can be saddened by that. We can even be amused by Jonathan Swift's critique of science. But if we're honest, this is the progression of how we understand the world, and has always been that way. Something goes from laughed at to maybe even made fun of or ignored to being accepted at some point, and that's the way that the world works. And so we can imagine that in 500 years or 1,000 years, what will they say about what we know? What will they laugh at that we thought was funny, that's right, or that we thought was wrong, that was right, or vice versa? You know? So there's going to be this progression in knowledge and things that change about how we understand the world works. And if we're also honest, then no matter how far humanity goes, whether it's 1,000 years or 5,000 years from now, God will always know more than humanity does about how the world works. He made it. So no matter how far we go, he will always know more. And so this brings up an interesting question, which is, if you come to the Bible and you ask it to talk to you in the way that you know the world works, and the Bible's been eternally relevant for the last 5,000 years and progressively for the next 1,000 or 5,000 years, why should it talk to you in the way that you understand the world? Because he understands it better. So when we come to it, which is on, it's very hard to do, don't, don't get me wrong, it's very hard to not come and say, I know how the world works, so talk to me in those terms. But if we don't come to it in those terms, what might we discover about how the Bible is talking to us? Now, just one clarification here. I am not telling you that we shouldn't un try to understand the world better. My job depends on it. I'm an engineer. <laughs> so, but what I'm, I'm saying is, is that if God is so wise that he could communicate through time in any way he wanted, any way he wanted to about the understanding of the world, why should we limit it to right now how we understand it? Does that make sense? Okay. So, let me give you an example. And this one you'll probably laugh at because you're like, oh, of course, you know that, David. The biblical worldview is heaven is up. Not a surprising one. You're going to go, sure, sure, absolutely. So if you go to Genesis 1, where are the heavens when he makes them? They're up. Deuteronomy 7.24 says, He will give their kings into your hands, and you will wipe out their names from under heaven. No one will be able to stand up against you. You will destroy them. 2 Kings 2.1, When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven, in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. So there's this idea about heaven being up. Isaiah 61a, this is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Heaven's up. Luke 24, Jesus is taken up to heaven. He goes up. Acts 7.55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So there's this consistent theme of the heavens being up. Now, 
We've done a lot more explanation since the, or, uh, exploration of the universe since the Bible was written, and I've yet to hear of any astronauts and, um, saying that they saw God sitting on his throne someplace when they went up, right? So just because we don't see that, we have to ask the question, what's the point, and why does God communicate it to us this way? Does that make sense? So we go into the next one. So if we come to the Bible asking the question, not what do we know of the world, but how does God communicate it to us? How does he want us to think about part of the world? And how does he see it deeper than us? The biblical worldview tells us that the sun, moon, and stars are supernatural beings. Now, you're going to again say to me, why would it do that? And we have to, at some point, stop and just trust that God has a reason for it, and we'll get to that. So the way we'll get to this first is um, Genesis 1 tells us that there are functions of the stars. And we often forget the fact that it gives us multiple different things for what the stars are for. One is they separate the day and the night. Seems pretty self-explanatory. Two is for signs. Now that signs word's weird because if you go to Genesis 9 where God says, I will put a sign in the sky, and he's talking to Noah after the flood. He puts a sign in the sky to let him know that he will never flood the world again. It's a rainbow. So he puts a sign in the sky. So there's something about it that he's communicating. Exodus 3.12, Moses is going, God, you're telling me to go to Egypt, but I don't know that I really trust you. And God's like, the sign that what I'm telling you is true is that you will find yourself back on this same mountain with the people. So that same word, the sign, is used. And so what, what that, you know, those, these examples allow us to see is, is that the sign is it's an example of something that points to a deeper truth. It points to something deeper than just the object. So in the same way, so stars are to point to something to deeper truth than just themselves. Two, or I'm sorry, three, this, the stars are for the seasons. They're literally for the festivals, and so they help to mark out time in a way. And the same thing with days and years. The fifth one, obvious, it gives light. Not surprising there. That one seems pretty self-explanatory. And then we get cough a little off guard because at the end you're told the sun and the moon are going to rule. And the word that is used here is exclusively outside of this example for kings. So for instance, Solomon in 1 Kings 9, 19, it's used of his ruling. And so all of a sudden we're told that the sun and the moon are ruling. And that seems interesting and unexpected. So here's one example of ways that we're sort of set up for the expectation, there's something more to the sun, moon, and stars. If you go to Genesis 2, 1, it actually says something here. At the beginning, it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So there's an earthly host, and there's a heavenly host. And we're familiar with that term, the heavenly host. And when we normally talk about that, who are we talking about? Angels, supernatural beings, right? So Already Genesis 2.1 is setting us up again for this idea that there's something about something that he put up there that is something more. So here we are. That's where we are right this, at this point. If we go to Isaiah 45.12, just a restatement of basically the same thing. I made the earth and created man in it. It was my hand that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. So again, this heavenly host idea. Psalm 89 Five through seven. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? 
Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? So God's on his throne. He's encircled by the heavenly host, and we see that plenty of different times, this divine council group that's around him. And so if you think in the biblical worldview that heaven is up, and you look up and you see something shiny, and you know it's not God, it might be something else. It might be heavenly beings. Do you understand the logic? I'm not telling you that you should feel like, yes, I feel great about this. I look up and now I totally see heavenly beings. I'm not telling you that. Do you understand the difference? I'm saying, how does the Bible talk? How should we think about it? Does that make sense? That's important. So Deuteronomy 4:19 helps us sort of keep bringing this out. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars... So it tells you those, and then it says, all the host of heaven. You to be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, these things that the Lord your God has allocated to the peoples under the whole heaven. So it says, here are these things, sun, moon, and stars. And then it says, the whole host of heaven. It's telling you who they are. So it's, and it's just restating what we've, already, what we've already been looking at. It's just pointing these things out to us. It's saying there's something important about the way this image works that we should be thinking about. Second Kings... 23 verses 4 through 5. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out the temple of the Lord, all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron, and carried away their ashes to Bethel. And he disposed of the priests whom the king of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, those who burned to Baal to the sun, the moon, and the constellations, and all the hosts of the heavens. So we keep seeing this image that there's something about the sun, moon, and stars that is supposed to be associated with the host of heavens. And what's interesting here is, is that up to this point, we've basically seen the host of heaven as something that is purely in line with God. And now humanity is actually worshiping the thing that was not supposed to be worshiped. And that's a problem because of the, we've reoriented. And it starts to sound a lot like Genesis 3. Humanity's supposed to be doing one thing and chooses to be subservient to a snake. But we know that snake's not just a snake. It's more. And so we, we continue to choose to either be subservient to God or to some other supernatural beings. And it keeps warning us, don't do that. Psalm 147, verse 4. He determines the number of the stars. He gives them to all of them their names. So he names the stars. And then Isaiah 40, if I can find it, 25 and 26. To whom will you compare me? To what shall I be like, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes on high and see who created these. He brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So he names both the heavenly host and he names the stars. Again, just making these connections where we see that he's naming these things. He knows them. They're his creations and we're not to be subservient to them. Psalm 148, verses 1 through 4. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. So it's supposed to be a certain order 
And we can choose to either keep part of that order or not keep part of that order and to worship the thing that's not to be worshipped. And even the heavenly beings are just like us. They're supposed to be worshipping God and not the other way around. Job 38, 5 through 7. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So again, there's this, just this constant connection of stars. And every time we see sons of God, it's about nine times. Every time we see sons of God, it's about supernatural beings. And so there's this just constant no matter what the word is that's being used, whether heavenly host or that type of thing, there's always this connection being made between stars and the heavenly hosts. So when we get to Revelation 1, verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Haiti. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And we go, Come on, John, we knew that one. We've already been tracking with that one. And you guys will go, sure, sure, David. No, we haven't. Um, neither was I. Um, so, but you know, here he goes, and he, he tells us this. At, 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 you know, he goes, here it is. And we go, if only John was that clear about all of them. If he would only tell us all of these in the same way. He'd be like, here's the thing. Let me tell you what that means. And unfortunately, he doesn't. And so I think part of the reason, though, again, is, is this, which is we are asked and invited to learn the images of the Bible. And once we become so part of us, when we go into something like this, we're no longer disoriented because it's part of us. And in the same way, when the prophets speak, this image is so part of them that that's just the way they talk. It comes out. So here we are. And we've been starting to understand and start to get a feel for this. But, you know, just again, just to sort of point out, Isaiah 14 shows us how not only are the heavenly beings subservient to him, but that there are also supernatural beings we know that are not subservient to him. So Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How far you've cut down to the ground. You laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will send to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And so there's this image of both stars, again, just like humanity, choosing to either be subservient to God or not to be subservient to God. And so we see this. And you, you can see this in Daniel 10 when Daniel prays for an, uh, a revelation of what this vision he sees is. And when the, the, guy, or the, the supernatural being shows up, he goes, but I had to fight with the help of Michael, the prince of Persia. And then I'm going to also have to deal with the prince of Greece. And though, again, the understanding is there's something about supernatural warfare that's already going on here. And you can see that again in Ezekiel 28. There's a prince of Tyre, but the king of Tyre is constantly being associated with supernatural beings that are opposed to God. And so there's this, this just image, which is just like humanity, 
supernatural beings have a choice to either choose to be subservient to God or not. And we know that just from Genesis 3 already on. We've got, we're already set up for it. We're already prepared for it. So we've got all this imagery. And so that means we can get into really the weird stuff, right? Where it starts to talk about the sun and the moon being turned to, you know, to blood or falling, the stars falling the skies. All of this starts to be connected with the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is just a everything all at once just packed together. All the biblical imagery that, there, that is there, it's just all packed into one. We can't go into all of it. It's just not possible. And it's, you know, there's piles of books written on the topic. The day of the Lord, though, it's always really helpful to, th- to ask the question, have we an example of something like it in the, in the Bible before this? And the first day of the Lord that's often you sort of talked about is the, the escape from Egypt. God comes in and brings judgment. So you look at like Joel, and Joel's, Joel's got the first two chapters. The first chapter, you have an invasion of locusts, reminding us of, and he's talking about, the whole book of Joel is talking about the day of the Lord. We've got the invasion of locusts. In the second chapter, it's an army. That sounds a lot like locusts. And you're like, is it locusts? Is it an army? But then you get to the third chapter, and all of a sudden, you've got the sun falling from the sky and the moon and the stars and all these types of things. And again, we have to remind ourselves, if these are images that we should be thinking about, have we seen something like it before in the past? Sure, we have, absolutely, in Egypt. The sun, was, everything was de- made completely black. God, and we've talked about this before, but the idea is that when co- God comes, he's both doing a decreation event, he's t- turning back things, he starts from the ground up, and by the end of it, instead of creating humanity, he's actually killing humanity and he's brought us back into darkness. And we have the same point also the fact that each one of those plagues is a direct fight against what the Egyptians saw as their gods. And every single time, God is demonstrating his power over it all. And whether it's the sun god, Ra, and God brings complete darkness. So whoever they worship, it doesn't matter. God has power over it all. And so that's one of the images we should be thinking about. They're worshiping the sun, moon, and stars, and God's like, I am greater than all of it. All of it. I created every part of it. So when we get to Isaiah 13, verse 10, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners it's sinners from it. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will sh- not shed its light. We can read that and go, well, that's something still to come. But if we read first verses one, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos saw. So it's about Babylon. So already we know there's something there. But then we get to verse 17 and we're told, Who's going to do this? Who's going to bring about this whole thing? Behold, I'm stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Now, the Medes do defeat the Persians or the, the Babylonians, and they do that, and they set up a new empire. But that happened a long time ago. And if you look up, you'll still find that the sun's shining, and the moon's, are at, moon's out and, you know, at different times. Now more during the day, I think, than during the night. And the stars are out. So... We have to recognize that just as in Egypt, there is a judgment that happens on different kingdoms. God brings about a full and complete judgment. And we know that. He's faithful to do that. It just may not look the way we would expect it to. Isaiah 24, 
17 to 20. Terror from the pit, the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. He who flees at the sound of terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are open, and the foundations of the earth tremble. Well, that windows of the heavens are opened. That sounds a lot like the flood. And so we get to see these images, right, that are constantly being drawing us back and pointing us to previous examples that should be making us think about what's going to happen, how does that look, and the fact that there are things about God brings judgment. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the king of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. So again, he keeps bringing and demonstrating that there is something about he will be the one that is the one with the full authority. Not anyone else, him. There is no supernatural being that can stand and take his place. They are all to be subservient to him. And if they're not, they, just like us, will be judged. And often that's the problem, right? This is the fact that humanity, as we saw earlier on, right? Whether we realize it always or not, we're choosing to be subservient to God or subservient to something else. And so when we choose to be subservient to something else, it and us will all be judged. Because God brings all, all, all things under him. Luke 21, 25 to 28. And there were signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what was coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And so de Christ's death and resurrection is the greatest defeat of supernatural evil. Through his death and resurrection, he defeats evil. evil. And we know the fact that like that image, that Son of Man coming, that's him ascending. He's taking his right place to rule and reign. And when he conquers through death, he defeats and brings judgment on all those powers. Now, that doesn't mean that there's still not more to be done because that's where we live, right? We live in this tension between their God, Christ is conquered and there's still more that we're waiting for. And that's the challenge for all of us every day is as we know what's the truth, Christ conquered, and then there's the tension of the fact that things aren't quite what we expect them to. And so when we read images like this, it's hard because we're like, if it's true that he brought judgment, then why do we still see this? And that's the, the, you know, the tension that we see throughout the whole New Testament. There is this understanding that we are already ruling in heavenly places. And yet, if you wake up in the morning, you're still pretty achy. The world's pretty much a mess. It's still just the way it is. But we have to recognize that there is a greater truth that we must orient ourselves to. Isaiah 34, 1 through 4. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations, and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. 
He has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood, and the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves from the fig tree. Same sort of image, but now it's very explicit. It's no longer talking, it didn't use sun and moon and stars in this case, right? It just started saying heavenly hosts, and it's gonna, they're all going to rot away, and the skies are going to be rolled up because God's going to bring judgment and re-unification re, um, of things in a way that were different than before. And so that's our promise. And so we get to Revelation 6, 12 through 14. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sh- sky... The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So again, you can see that the sky is rolled up, just like Isaiah 34. In this case, you see the sun, moon, and stars. In the other one, you saw the host of heaven. So there's just this constant, like, the two overlap. And so when you get to Revelation, you shouldn't be like, what are these things? We should be going, ah, okay, I'm following, I'm tracking. And this is what I know. God's faithful to bring judgment to all who stand opposed to him. And we'll bring restoration and a realignment. And for those who haven't fallen asleep at this point, you might also have noticed that between uh, Isaiah 34 and Luke 1 through 4, both of them talk about things falling from the tops of trees. And because we're just noticing things, we'll also notice the fact that maybe the tops of trees are associated with the heavens, which I will not go into any more detail, but it's definitely a theme. Oh, sorry. Okay. So maybe at this point you're asking the question, did they really think that the stars were supernatural beings? Since we're coming off of graduation week, we have people who are going up a grade. Do you expect next year to walk in and find those people slightly higher up than they were last year? Up, physically, up. (laughs) So they're going to be Ta- like their, their, plat- their base is going to be higher up. And so we're not going to find that. So we recognize that we use images that often aren't what we say. In the same way, we look at the sun and we say it rises. We really know it doesn't rise. We're actually, you know, the way that the world is is different than the way we sometimes often describe it. So just because there's a biblical image that says something doesn't mean that that's what the Israelites thought. And that's not what we're being asked to do. We're being invited to allow images to get inside of our head in the same way that we always do. And they shape us. Because at the end of the day, how you think about things make a big difference. If you think that arguments, this is my problem, if you think that arguments are wars and that you're supposed to win them, me, that's my problem, then I have a really hard time with arguments because I always think I have to win or otherwise I haven't done my job. But if you see them as something else, then they shape you differently. And so how you images are inside of your head shape how you see the world. And so the Bible invites us to weird images. Some of them extremely strange, like this one. But there's something about the truth that is revealed through them that we're invited to partake in. So to go back to the question, do they or do they not think this? Origen, um, early church father, late um, 100s, early 200s A.D., Um, basically argues that 
they are not the same thing. And he uses only the Bible to do it. And he basically says, if you look at things like Genesis 3, where you see this supernatural being choosing to be disobedient, you look at things like Job 1 and 2, where God is actually inviting them to go out and observe the world and come back and give him um, insight and advice on how things are. And the same thing with 1 Kings 22. The prophet Micaiah gives us a peek into what's going on in the kingdom of Ah with King Ahab. And each of those, we get an invitation to see the supernatural beings being um, active and participants in things. And so their autonomy doesn't match what you see in the sky. They're very fixed. They don't have a lot of sort of choice. They just go where they go. And so Origen argues they're not the same things. But he concludes basically this way. When the saints have reached the heavenly places, then they will see clearly the nature of the stars one by one and will understand whether they are living creatures or whatever may be truth about them. So it's just one of those things to where we, we may not know, but we're not always have to know. We have to be recognized, though, that we're invited to do something different and to see these images and let them become part of who we are. Does it, oh, and then the other, I think, question that this brings is, if the day of the Lord describes this crazy imagery, does that mean that, nothing about the, that we understand nothing about what the future holds? We know that God is faithful to bring judgment. We know that. We've seen it. We've seen it consistently. If the imagery sometimes doesn't always match with exactly what's going to happen, that's okay. Because at the end of the day, if you look at the prophecies that are made of Jesus. Afterwards, it's very obvious what they meant. Beforehand, they're not obvious. And that's why everyone's confused. And so in the same way, we wouldn't expect that these prophecies, you'd be able to say like, okay, so I took this one and I figured out what this meant. And I figured out what this meant. Draw a line. This is this. Got it. This is this. This is this. This is this. Does that make sense? And so when we come to it, what I like what N.T. Wright says about this. We must remind ourselves that all Christian language about the future is a set of signposts pointing into a mist. Signposts don't normally provide you with an advanced photograph of what you'll find at the end of the road, but that doesn't mean they aren't pointing in the right direction. So just because this imagery is weird and hard to follow doesn't mean that it doesn't point us to the truth. It just means that you can't say, take these things and say, well, you know, I thought about it for a little bit, and if this is this, and they said something about north, if I take this guy and who's north of him, then they're going to be the ones that do this thing. We miss the imagery that the Bible says and how it works. There is something deeper and greater about what's being communicated than limiting it to that understanding. Does that make sense? So, with that... I think what's really important for us to understand is that there is a relationship between humanity and the stars. And you, you know, a place to start with that is Genesis 37. If I, I mean, imagine for a second, your son comes to you and says, I had a dream that the sun, moon, and stars bowed down to you, or bowed down to me. I'd be like, how in the world does a dot, bow, you know, a shiny little dot bow down to you? Or like a circle. I mean, try to imagine a circle bowing. It doesn't bow, it just wobbles. So, but, you know, Jacob doesn't do any of that. He goes, what are you saying? That your mother and, and I and my, your brothers are going to bow down to me? 
or you know, to bow down to you. Um, and so there's something already understanding that is in Jacob's mind that he doesn't go, I had no idea that was coming. He gets it. He doesn't argue with him. He just, he's offended by what it, the implications are, but he doesn't miss the image. So where do we even start for something like that? Genesis, as always, is the great, best place to start. So Genesis 2. And this is the, starting in verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the days that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Now, this statement, these are the generations of heaven and earth. Every time that generations is used in the rest of Genesis, it's always describing actual generations. This is this person, and here is generations. This is this person, here is generations. And so we get the statement, crazy statement that it is, that these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. So humanity, in some way, is more than dirt. And we see that because God's breath of all things is the thing that animates the dirt. And so humanity is not like the rest of the creatures that are made on earth. It's more. And we're really optimistic until we flip the page. (laughs) And then we get, again, this choosing to be subservient to another created creature instead of to the creator. And that's where we set up. We're left with this hanging where we're going, ah, there was so much potential. And then we're left wondering what's going to happen. And so we get to see some images as we move through the book, uh, through the Old Testament. Song of Songs, um, describing the woman. He's describing all of these beautiful attributes of her. And he says, Who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession? So there's something about if we achieve um, sort of like that ideal function the way we're supposed to, then we get to start to be something more than just dirt, just dust. Daniel 12, 1 to 3. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who is charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, and some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So there's something about humanity. When it's raised... When the resurrection happens, there is going to be a greater and fuller fulfillment of who we were meant to be than was possible before. And so we're left with this promise as we sort of move through the Old Testament that there is a promise, just like um, Daryl read this morning with Ezekiel, that there's going to be a new life poured into these dead bones, that there's going to be something poured out that is so powerful, and we're looking for that thing as we move into the New Testament. And so we get to Matthew 13, 
And Jesus, Jesus is talking about the parable of the weeds. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out his kingdom and all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fire, fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous shall shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So there's this promise that we keep seeing of the fact that humanity will take on a greater responsibility than what it was before, and that we will be elevated to a position that is hard to imagine. Even now, it's hard to imagine, even though we know it's true. <laughs> so this brings us to 1 Corinthians 15, which is you know, one of those chapters that just packs resurrection language into it. And so we start at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life until it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body and as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory to heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is to another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What's sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural living natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a living or life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And it is the man of heaven, so also we are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so we recognize all of a sudden we start to see some things that we're going, hey, you know what? That starts to sound familiar. You know, people get to these images that say things like spiritual body and go, wow. But, you know, you look and you go, wait a second. He's talking about sun, moon, and stars in there when he starts talking about that portion. And we go, oh, I see. We're already starting to orient ourselves because we recognize the images of the Bible. Then when, he gets, when, when uh, we get these statements in 1 Corinthians about what we're to look forward to, we don't go, I have absolutely no idea what I'm looking at here or what this is like. In one way, yeah, we have absolutely no idea. In another way, the Bible gives us some images to sort of orient ourselves around. So we have something that is sown, and it does die, and it is raised. So we recognize that just like a seed, there's something about it that was like it, but it's changed, it's transformed. We recognize that there's something about the supernatural world that is different than our world, and yet it's also there's overlap and we get to see that constantly. And so when you get things like glorification, and we keep getting this uh, idea of shininess, and go, shininess, what's that? Sun, moon, and stars gives us a way more context for how we're supposed to be thinking about what that means, that we are being invited into something to a greater authority and a greater responsibility than we were before. Psalm 8 tells us that we're made a little lower than the heavenly beings. But by 1 Corinthians 6, we're told that we will judge the angels. We have been brought and matured through the Spirit into something more than we could be before. And so we go back to Psalm 8, 5 through 7, and we notice a couple things here. 
Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. And if we stop right there, we recognize that the holy ones is the same word in the New Testament that's used for saints. And so every time we're called saints, we're being called holy ones. And the promise is, is that we, through the Spirit, are transformed into something greater. The unification of heaven and earth, we are that place that overlaps. And we get the same thing in Romans 8, because again, we saw in, in song, uh, Sons of God, every single time it's used, it's of supernatural beings. And in Roman 8, Romans 8, it comes back and it says, you are sons of God. And how do we know that we are? For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. You have been transformed. You have been redeemed. You have been made more than you could possibly imagine <laughs> because of what God has done, because he poured out his Spirit. So I'm going to pause there and open it up for questions before I close. Then, as I promised, we'll go to Acts 2. Because I said we'd, I promised we'd, go, we'd close on Pentecost. Acts 2, verses 14 through 16. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For there are, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. For this is what is uttered through the prophet Joel. So we're set up right here with the expectation that whatever he's about to tell us is the answer for why these people are running around babbling and saying weird things. Whatever the answer is, this is what he's about to tell us is the reason that all of this is going to happen. So, and we go to Joel for this, right? So this is the day of the Lord imagery that all of a sudden we're being told is the case. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you read that, and if we don't have some of this imagery, we go, how in the world is that an answer to the question? But we know now. We look at it and go, the spirit was poured out, and so the eclipse of the thing that was ruling before, the supernatural beings, has no longer the same thing. Humanity has been elevated to a new position because they have been made sons of God, not because of something they've done, but because of what Jesus did on the cross and the pouring out of the Spirit. We have been raised to a new position and have greater authority than we really can even wrap our heads around. And that's what Peter's answer is here is, there is a new rulership, authority structure that has been put in place with Pentecost. And it has completely changed the world. So Lord, I just thank you today for the pouring out of your spirit, for the transformation, the resurrection of us that happens through your spirit being poured into us. And Lord, I just pray that you would just continue to open our eyes to be able to appreciate how amazing and incredible that is.
your name. Amen.